Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we have a special session where I will be discussing Shakespeare's comedy, Much Ado About Nothing, with the anonymous Twitter user King Bolingbroke. I heard some of his analysis of the Tempest in a space he did with Athenian Stranger and thought that he was someone that I and all of you could learn a great deal from. He's written some analysis of contemporary politics for American greatness and American mind, and I will link those to the Substack. So welcome to you, Mr. Bolingbroke. Um, maybe I'll just start by asking you this. Why do you think that Shakespeare is so good? Or another way of putting it is, why have you decided to place Shakespeare at the center of your thinking? Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Um, Shakespeare for me, he, he there's there's several there's several aspects of who he is as a thinker and as a writer that play significantly into my intellectual approach to the tradition of political philosophy and why I try and get at it by way of Shakespeare primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, I think that he is the English Homer, or maybe he was, or maybe he should be. That the role that Homer played for the ancient Greeks, that is Shakespeare for the English. And so if you are an English-speaking person, you're in the English-speaking world, you're in the Western world, then learning from Shakespeare is as fundamental as learning from Homer would be for the Greeks. Um, hmm. And so so it's foundational in that way. Uh, to that point as well, if you have not read Shakespeare and the King James Bible at length repeatedly throughout your life, you're not really educated in the English language, in my opinion. <laughs> Um, that's, that's where it all comes from. You know, Shakespeare invented a lot of the words and the figures of speech and the references and all just the way that we talk, that's where it comes from. And the more that you study these sources, Shakespeare and the KJV, uh, the more that you find that there's this richness in the English language and in the English tradition that I think a lot of times it's not given credit for. Sometimes we you know, oh, well, there's Jane Austen and, you know, there's Mark Twain and there's all, all these, all these different sort of like novelists and that's sort of what the English tradition is all about. Uh, and that's true. That's, that's an important contribution of English, mm-hmm. but it also has these very deep roots that are really similar to, to those that you find in the, in the more classical traditions that people become enamored with in, in Rome and in Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, his writing is also beautiful and engaging. It's very worth your while. Just reading it will lift your soul and will make you a better person because it has this morally salutary influence and will improve your ability to write and think uh, more carefully and more beautifully. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, the most important reason for me is that he possesses deep political wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, his plays offer this way of looking at practical applications of the most important principles in political philosophy that you don't get when you're just reading a treatise. Mm-hmm. You know, when you read Aristotle, he has, he has fantastic principles. He's very deep. He's very dense. Every sentence you have to be very careful with. Mm-hmm. But aside from occasional historical examples or making himself a foil to other thinkers, you know, dealing with the pre-Socratics and whatever else, you're kind of left to, okay, how do I apply this? What, what, what would this look like in practice? Mm-hmm. And that's what Shakespeare does essentially is he takes political principles and he shows what they look like in a more practical setting. Mm-hmm. Um, you can study a Shakespeare play a lot like a platonic dialogue because mm-hmm. of the 
way he does it. There is no um, Shakespeare's voice is never heard in the same way as Plato's voice is never heard. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm a little under the weather. Um, <clears throat> so th- th- this this depth and uh, then, of course, as you read it more carefully, the more that you read it, you'll find that he is self consciously engaging in this philosophical project, a lot like a Plato or an Aristotle, but through this unique lens of poetry. Mm-hmm. And I, I just find it endlessly fascinating. There's endless depths to it. He has such a large corpus and mm-hmm. it's, it's just such a wonderful way to approach the tradition. You know, I'm, I'm working on a PhD in political philosophy. And so I've, I've studied all the other things and I do study all of them and I teach all of them. Mm-hmm. But for me, this is like, the most entertaining and lively touch point. And mm-hmm. so I, I commend anyone to, to approach it this way. There's, there's a lot that can be gained from it. Right. All right. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a really, really thoughtful answer. Um, and I think based on our previous discussions and what we plan to talk about today, yeah, we'll learn. Yeah. A lot about the human soul. And, well, in the same way that you would from Plato. And I think, yeah, there is a lot to begin. So with that said, then maybe let's, let's get into the play itself. Um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll start by offering a brief summary of the play. And then Bolingbroke, because I think you definitely understand Shakespeare better than I do. You can add anything to the summary that you think uh, that it leaves out. But, but we could begin by saying a civil war has recently been resolved in Aragon. The prince, who's also known as Don Pedro, defeated his bastard brother, Don John. As a way of getting some respite after the war, the prince and his uh, bastard brother, Don John, and also Claudio, a young man who distinguished himself in the war, and Benedict, a sharp-witted man who's friends with Claudio, visit the governor, Leonardo, in Messina. So he moved from Spain to Italy. Claudio falls in love with Leonardo's daughter, and the prince offers to woo this daughter named Hero on Claudio's behalf. Don John and his cronies attempt to make Claudio believe that the prince will woo Hero for himself, but their plan does not ultimately work. The prince, meanwhile, sets about trying to get the beautiful and sharp-witted Beatrice and Benedict together. Don John and his cronies yet again set about on a new plan to convince everyone that Hero is unfaithful, and they stage an event where a woman named Margaret, who looks a little bit like Hero and who will dress like Hero, is seen through her window with another man. On the proposed marriage day, Claudio humiliates Hero. A friar leads Leonardo, Benedict, and Beatrice in a plan to convince everyone that Hero is dead as a way to try to induce her betrayers to tell the truth. Hero is vindicated as a faithful woman, and Leonardo arranges for Claudio and Hero to be married, though he conceals the fact that she is alive until the wedding itself where Claudio believes that he will marry Hero's cousin. So the play almost ends in tragedy, but has a comedic ending instead. Um, I know, I know we'll talk about a lot of the details of the play, but is there anything you would add to that kind of basic summary or anything that you think I distorted? No, I, I think, I think that's, that's very good. I, th- I think that you went into all the areas that we need and it sets the table very well for uh, the, the various things that we're going to need to be able to draw on. So it's, it's a good summary and, and listeners should bear it in mind. Okay. So then I think you, you kind of like propose the theme that we're going to discuss. So how about you maybe bring that out um, now? Yeah. 
in the play, what, what I see is, of course, the theme, the general theme is the question of love. Everything in this is um, lovers and beloved and how these people are courting each other. And it's, there's going to be marriage and there's tension in the courtship and all these different things. But there's also another question that seems to apply uh, the limits of love or rather the relationship between reason and love. So uh, you, you begin with looking at uh, someone like Benedict and he thinks that it's unreasonable to love people to, mm-hmm. to love a woman in particular, because it puts you, it makes you vulnerable to, uh, to being, to, to, to you're trusting someone, you're trusting another person and he fears that you'll be betrayed if you trust another person. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the prince who he's involved in trying to use his reason to these machinations to cause people to love each other. And so there's sort of these, these two tensions is does reason command us not to love or can reason assist us in finding those that we ought to love? And what is the balance and what is the meaning of the relationship between reason and love uh, in life and in the play, I think is, is a question that is very fruitful. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Good. So then maybe we could start talking about Benedict first. Uh, Maybe I can say a little bit about him and then you can um, add on anything that seems good. So in act one, scene one, we see that Claudio is highly interested in marrying Hero. Um, and we see Benedict try to persuade Claudio not to do this. Now we learn earlier in that scene, um, there's like a, a kind of joke where uh, they ask if Hero is Leonardo's daughter, and he says, "Well, I'm pretty sure about that um, because you know Benedict was too young to have slept with my wife at that point, and on that basis, I can be pretty sure that I am the dad." And that might be an indication that Benedict has been somebody who's tempted married women into being unfaithful, and that experience or that action on his part is something that sort of shapes the way that he understands love or how he sees marriage as a grave risk for any man. So, so when Benedict tries to persuade Claudio not to pursue hero's hand in marriage, um, he sort of brings out, or he's concerned with what he takes to be a fundamental fact about women is that they are well fundamentally unfaithful and that marriage dooms a man to the humiliation of cuckoldry. Like you see cuckoldry throughout the play um, referred to again and again and again. And you could say that if somebody cheats on you, it's difficult to understand it as anything else um, than a statement against one's worth. One thing among many that we hope for out of love is maybe something like confirmation of our own goodness. And so being cheated on leads us to fear that we aren't, that we aren't as good as we thought that we were. And the cuckold feels like a fool. He thought that he could trust his wife, and now he doubts his judgment. And not only this, but he's now more doubtful of everybody else. He's less open to pursuing the good things that come to us from trusting relationships alone. So um, I guess you could say Benedict, believing that he understands the truth about love, advises his friend Claudio to assume a self-protective stance against the possible pains that attend love. Um, That you shouldn't be blinded by beauty, but you should take a more distant stance. Um, So it seems like it's less that Benedict wants to sleep with lots of uh, easy women or something like that. Though we get the indication that maybe he does that sometimes, but it seems like it's more that he fears the pain 
that might that would certainly accompany being a cuckold. Um, yeah. What what else What else would you say about the arguments that Benedict advances against love, or why he's why he thinks that love should not pl- have a place in a well lived life? Um, I think that I think that that covers it pretty well, and I'll add that Benedict and Beatrice, they both evince this because of their hesitance. And, you know, Benedict, he makes these arguments about love and Beatrice, she's not as maybe systematic in her arguments against it, but it's, everybody sort of agrees like, oh man, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna be able to love Beatrice because she's, she's a a battle axe, you know, she's, she's a little bit (laughs) difficult and aggressive and, all these things. And in fact, Benedict even says, uh, when Claudio's trying to get Benedict's approval, he's like, what do you think about Hero? He says, well, she's not ugly, is sort of his response. And uh, Claudio says, no, no, she's the most beautiful one I've ever seen. He goes, no, I mean, Beatrice is more beautiful than than uh, than a Hero is. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's already this indication that he has this affection for Beatrice and Beatrice has this affection for him. In fact, Beatrice's first line in the play, uh, you know, this, there's been this war, uh, Claudio and Benedict have fought in it and Beatrice's first line in the play. It's a joke. She asks, she asks it in a silly way, but she's asking if Benedict is still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's her first concern. And so there's already this sort of affection between them that, as you know, in your summary, uh, the prince tries to get them together and there's, there's these, uh, these plots to make them fall in love with each other. But both of them, despite the fact that, you know, Benedict says that he thinks that Beatrice is beautiful. Beatrice wonders if Benedict has died. Um, they both protect themselves with this veneer of sarcasm. Whenever mm-hmm. they talk to each other, it's a battle of wits. And mm-hmm. for Shakespeare, wit and reason are the same thing. They're using their wit to protect their heart. Um, we, we, we'd call it heart. Um, if you want to use the more classical idea, eros would be in the stomach, thumos or, or spiritedness would be in the heart, and then reason would be in the head. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, to me, I think it, it demonstrates the thoroughness of Benedict's feelings about love, because certainly he makes these arguments against it, but then he shows in his practice that he is going to use his his uh, skill in in his reasoning, which is often, you know, everybody's always talking about his wit and his ability, you know, these funny jokes he can tell and stuff. He's going to mm-hmm. use that to his advantage to protect his heart, to protect him from, uh, from you know, becoming a cuckold, which is, as, as you note, the main fear that he forwards about people who fall in love. Right. Right. And maybe, yeah, something maybe to add, to Benedict's argument. And then I think maybe there's a, div- a kind of like development of his argument in act two, scene three, but um, when he's talking to, or when Claudio briefly thinks that the prince has stolen hero from him, uh, Benedict makes a pretty striking argument when he sort of says that Claudio more or less to paraphrase it, you deserve to be punished rather than the prince being des- like deserving of punishment um, because Claudio was foolish enough to trust somebody else. So he really, and and I think at the beginning too, in one of Beatrice's early lines, 
she says that Benedict is always looking for like a new best friend. They're like, who's the dude that he's hanging out with this month? And it seems like Benedict really longs for kind of deep and serious friendship on one hand, since he's always looking for friends who can be his sworn brothers. But on the other hand, he can't maintain them. And it seems like, I guess Shakespeare doesn't fully spell it out, but I wonder if it has something to do with his, well, always counseling them not to trust other people, that it's hard not to eventually turn that reasoning back onto your friend. Like, so you're saying you shouldn't trust any of the women, but like, are you trustworthy yourself? They're like this, like self-protected so that Benedict is self-protective on one hand, but still craves the goods that attend these more trusting relationships. And he's more willing to maybe attempt them with men through friendship. Um, and I wonder uh, when I was like re looking at the play in light of our conversation yesterday, there's something, I think it's like act, act one, scene one around line 142 that Beatrice says to Benedict, like, I know you of old. And I, I don't know for sure, but I mean, that could be an indication that they had, well, as you pointed out, you know, they've, they've had a merry war with each other. And that would seem to indicate that. And if she's like, Whoa, is Benedict alive? Even though she's joking, there's maybe yeah, a few indications in the play of some kind of previous, if not relationship, at least some kind of entanglement where they both felt something about each other. Because also in Act 2, Scene 1, pretty late in the scene, uh, she seems to almost like indicate that she may have broken Benedict's heart before. So it also could be, yeah, that Benedict maybe was interested in Beatrice before, but things didn't work out so well. I'm not entirely sure about that. But to say one last thing about this... um. In Act 2, Scene 3, it seems like Benedict redevelops his argument along the lines that Beatrice has, where he's kind of – I think it's more or less like a soliloquy, and he says that he would only be with a woman – and we'll talk about Beatrice's argument uh, very soon. But he says that only a woman that had all the graces would be a woman that he could fall in love with, so that maybe love would be good, but if and only if a woman is virtuous, wise, beautiful, and perhaps rich. Like she needs, she needs all of these things in order to be a genuine resource for our happiness, if we expect somehow to be fully happy um, due to love or something like that. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, that, that brings back the theme Benedict's uh, hesitance, of course, about love we understand, but then he sets terms on love. And again, this is, he's, he's applying his reason. And he's, you know, it's, it's a modification of the arguments no longer. I would not love, but it's, if I would love, it has to meet this minimum standard. And the minimum standard is, uh, unrealistic. It's, mm-hmm. it's simply there, there are not people like that in the world in a thoroughgoing sense. Many people partake in these things in some, in some portion, but th- there are not, uh, goddesses walking around for everybody to marry. And that's what Benedict essentially wants. He says, this would be the only terms on which I would love. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So do you think that we should move to Beatrice's argument or should we spell out how Benedict falls in love? Um, I think that uh, we, let's, let's touch on Beatrice briefly because I think that it's makes more sense to talk about how they both fall in love because it is a, it's almost identical. Right. Right. Okay, good. So, um, in act two, scene one, I, maybe there are other places as well, but it seems to me it's there that she develops an alternative account to Benedict's where I think you're right to say, maybe she hasn't thought about it as obsessively as Benedict. And maybe it's precisely because she had hurt Benedict in the past. Although I maintain that that's, that's speculative. I don't know that that's for sure the case, but 
Right. But at any rate, she offers a different, a different account of why we ought to reject love. Um, she, she playfully starts thinking through how to reconfigure and combine different personality traits. Like what if, you know, like a little bit of, you know, Don John's melancholic could come into Benedict or something like that. You know, we can cut their tongues and things like that. So she thinks about how you could reconfigure different people's personality traits so that they could participate in one ideal man. And then she describes how she needs a, a man who is both with a beard and without a beard at the same time and in the same respect. Um, so in other words, she seems to long for something that's impossible or that is just simply unreasonable to hope for. And she says as well that she wants a man made out of gold rather than one made out of dust as all the men that she knows are. Um, and it would seem that Beatrice maybe has um, very high hopes about the kind of happiness that love can or should be able to deliver to us. But uh, so she wants this like, yeah, high she wants a lot out of love on one hand, but she seems to think that there's no earthly resource that's great enough to deliver the goods. And so this is all in the service of offering hero advice, just as Benedict had offered advice to Claudio. And so Beatrice tells to hero or tells her that in a way, I mean, she says it much more poetically and beautiful, but to do something terrible and just kind of break it out into not quite a syllogism, but just to sort of take what I think is the underlying thought behind it. She seems to think that love works in three stages. It burns hot before marriage. Then the wedding is this kind of like stately, you know, nice, or I think she even says like ancient affair, kind of like a nice traditional thing. But that surely, shortly thereafter, one will repent for having been married. Um, it's as if she wants the incredible rush of feeling that attends the beginning of a relationship to burn just as brightly for the entire duration of the marriage or she, she really hopes for some kind of superlative satisfaction that like love alone can supply a sort of happiness that is just sort of constant and just really, really powerful. Um, so it's almost like she wants too much out of it perhaps and just can't, she's never met a man that really seems like they could deliver on all the promises that she's invested love with or something to that end. Um, or yeah. So yeah, what, what would you add or subtract about Beatrice's sort of view of love? You know, it, it parallel, well, it, it looks a lot like Benedict's, especially in the description of the person that you want to marry. If you describe it's, it's a, it's a defense mechanism. You know, if you describe someone impossible, then you never have to marry. Mm -hmm. And so both she and he say, okay, I, I would marry, but only on favor under these favorable circumstances would I submit to something like that uh, where, where it's a man of gold who has all of the attributes, all the good attributes of all of the men that I know with uh, while leaving off the bad, mm -hmm. uh, which is, which is humorous. And then the other point uh, love would only be worthy if it can hold the heat of the honeymoon era throughout <laughs> forever. Um, this is, this, uh, reminds me of Rousseau's description of love in the Emile. Mm -hmm. uh, in the Emile, Rousseau talks about how marriage, it does start in that way. It's this physical affection that you are attracted to each other and you want to come together. There's this heat. But then over time, you have children. And the kind of love that develops when children come into the family is uh, something more like a domestic love. That It's no longer this 
hot burning passion, but now there's still love and it's very comforting and loving and yeah. good. And then eventually the children grow up. But by that time, presumably you and your spouse have spent 30, 40, 50 years together. Mm-hmm. So now you, if, if it's done rightly, love to spend time together. Mm-hmm. And it's no long, I mean, of course, and as you get older, uh, Kefalos makes the point, you don't have the sexual passion and it makes it easier to be honest, right? Uh, as, <laughs> right. as you get older, that sexual passion, it goes away. It's not really what the relationship's about anymore. I mean, it'll still be there to, to whatever extent, but it's about enjoying your time together. The the loving affection of a of a dear friend and of one with whom you've spent your whole life. You you have all of your experiences shared together. And this is this is sort of like the you know, this is the response that you can give to Beatrice, right? Beatrice says it has to burn hot. Mm-hmm. Rousseau would say, well, it simply is not going to do that. And <laughs> it's it's not gonna it's not gonna stay that way. Uh, it's gonna change, but it's okay because each phase is sweet. Mm-hmm. And we have to be willing to accept the changes. Otherwise, we are never gonna get what we want out of love because we're holding out again, as as I was saying, unrealistic expectations. Right. Right. So then in this case, it's like a reasonable view of love. I I suppose maybe we'll talk about this more at the the end, but yeah, reasonable view of love might hold it out as a good thing, but just not as like productive of like a whole and complete happiness all on its own. That's sort of like burned or something like that. Um, and, And what you said makes me wonder, I'd have to like, you know, look back through Beatrice's speeches, but I wonder if she ever mentions children. I, I have the sense that maybe she never does. Um, yeah, but I, I think the only, the to my memory, the only discussion of children, the only mention of children is uh, by the older folks when they're talking about, because, you know, these are all young people who are having these romances. The only mention of children that I can remember is when they're talking about Hero and the Hero pretending to be a niece and... Uh, in in that context, I don't think there's any discussion of like babies. Oh wait, maybe there's one. Now I'm suddenly remembering one. Uh, <laughs> I think when Benedict, uh, like one of his sort of speeches by himself, he I thought he says something to the effect of like the world must be peopled. Um, I mean, isn't that isn't is that? It's been a while since I read the Tempest. Is that something Caliban says too? <laughs> yes, Caliban says uh, I would I would people this island with Calibans. Uh, <laughs> When he's he's uh, um, he's angry that he, he was made a slave. He wasn't a slave always, but he was made a slave because he tried to rape Miranda, which is uh, prostitute daughter. And he's you know thinking back like, oh, if I had just been able to do that, I would have peopled this island with Taliban's, and then I'd then I'd be in charge. <laughs> right. So, so it's, yeah, an interesting like resonance uh, <laughs> between the two plays, I suppose, but. But at any rate, it does seem like maybe somehow Benedict helps himself to that uh, justification for his love since he knows that he's had doubts about love and he knows that people are going to give him a lot of shit about changing his stance so radically, you know, to say that like, well, I'm going to never love anybody, but now I am in love. And I, I guess, yeah, to like sort of follow up on their arc in a way, it's almost like at first he takes on a completely, like as you would kind of said, like a self-protective stance 
to protect his heart, using reason always to protect his heart. But then it's almost like the way that the other characters, like the prince organizes it so that both Benedict and Beatrice overhear the other characters claiming that the other person loves them. Yep. So it's almost like they, as I think you were saying yesterday, that they, the prince appeals to the reasonable approach of Benedict and Beatrice by sort of bringing out that um, they would only fall in love if they thought it was really reliable and like a sure thing. Like they really need to know that like the other person likes me, right? Okay, good. Now I can approach them. And so they arrange it so that both of them think that the other person definitely likes them. And it's only because they are secure enough in their knowledge of that, that they're willing to approach each other. Um, and that then by There's, the end, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, and and to that point as well, it flatters their vanity. Um, it it not only appeals to their reason, right? It's their safety in this approach that, oh, I know for certain because this person was told from the horse's mouth, this is the case. And they're not going to tell me because they have this negative estimation of me, which we can, we can talk about that in a second. Uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to subvert the expectation and I'm mm-hmm. going to go forward because this person loves me and that makes you feel good. It makes you feel good about yourself. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, and it, it's almost like by the end, although it, it works itself out kind of like on the last page of the play, I suppose, but I mean, it, it goes from like Benedict being, or maybe we could say this is that at the moment when everybody thinks that Hero has been unfaithful to Claudio, when Leonardo is almost like going as far as to say, well, not even almost, I mean, he goes as far as to say that his daughter should die for her unfaithfulness, that Benedict is almost like the first person to say, like, I'm in wonder, I feel wonder. So that we might've been thinking that Benedict, the second that he sensed infidelity, would be like, yes, of course. So then Benedict is the first person to say, I'm experiencing wonder right now because he's just sort of like at a loss. Like Hero seems to be one way and yet there seems to be this evidence that she's another way. So it's like he's sort of filled with wonder at this moment because it just doesn't make any sense. And so he thinks like, well, I don't know, maybe we should reconsider this. So it's almost like his experience of loving Beatrice and really being able to admit to himself that he does love her and has a sense that she loves him back suddenly makes him think like, you know what? Maybe somebody who is devoted to somebody else, they might not cheat on them based on the way that he feels about Beatrice. I mean, that's kind of reading into it a little bit, but. Um, no, that, that seems like the right thing to me. And especially if you look at his speech and I went, I went and I checked. Um, it, he does say the world must be peopled. Um, it's a uh, act two, scene three line two forty two. Um, shall quips and sentences and these paper bullets of the brain awe a man from a career of his humor. No, the world must be peopled. When I said I would die a bachelor, I did not think I should live till I were married. Mm-hmm. So he, it's it's part of his argument to himself. But the way that he speaks when he comes forward, uh, it, it it's it's funny because he says this can be no trick, which of course is wrong. <laughs> is a trick, right? But he's so he's made to overhear that Beatrice says that she loves Benedict. And she thinks that if it's revealed to him, that he'll uh, mock her and that he'll, because this is what they always do to each other and he'll make fun of her and he'll reject her. And so she's going to let her heart break rather than have him break her heart. She's going to let it break on her own. Mm-hmm. And after this ends, you know, that they, they know what they're doing. Of course, they're, they're jiving him on. And after this ends, he says, this can be no trick. The conference was sadly born. They have mm-hmm. the truth of this from hero. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and he, it, it, his disposition from that moment forward is softened and changed. And, uh, as you note, the Prince early on in the play, you know, um, early on in the play, Benix, you know, I'm never going to marry mm-hmm. and all these things. Uh, the Prince says, you're going to be pale with love. It's going to happen <laughs> and I'm going to see it happen but before you know it. It's not something that you get to decide about. Mm-hmm. And, and it does as soon as, as soon as this um, it's revealed to him that there is someone who loves him sincerely, his heart melts and he's no longer the stolid uh, stoic personality. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And not only <laughs> is he not uh, that way, but he also is like willing to make potentially the sacrifice of his life for Beatrice because she is so upset about how Hero was treated that Claudia went too far in humiliating her in light of his suspicion that she was unfaithful, that she says, you need to duel him. Like you have to, cause he's, he <laughs> like Benedict says something to the effect of like, I will do anything for you. And then she's like, okay, c- kill Claudia. And he almost, I think he says, ha after that, but then realizes that Beatrice is deadly serious. And so he does challenge him to a duel. They don't end up having to duel at the end. It, it seems like there's just so much happiness bursting out at the end that he's just able to just kind of politely sort of say, you know what? We, I don't have to fight um, Claudio. He can be unbruised, I think, as it said. But um, but at any rate, he's willing to fight Claudio, who's not only his like sworn brother and friend, as he puts it, or as Beatrice puts it, that he always has a new sworn brother, but also that Claudio distinguished himself in battle in the Civil War. So it's like he has to fight his friend, who also might be the toughest warrior um, in Aragon. And so that is to say, and he, and he wants to fight him in the most noble way possible. He's not going to poison him or something like that. He's going to challenge him to a duel. So he's almost like inspired to be as noble as possible and to therefore risk as big of a thing as he can, I, I suppose, with his own life. Yeah, well, he's he's going to die, right? He, he's going to die for love because he right. loves Beatrice, as, as you say. Claudio is the the top soldier. That's that's what we're who you know who did who did really well in the war. Well, it was Claudio. He's the one who 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 did really well, and he nevertheless challenges him. And Claudio thinks he's joking, and he gets more angry at this, and just says, "I'm going to see you when the challenge. Like I'm going to see you at the duel." Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So it's like a huge, <laughs> like just a complete turning around of Benedict's sort of account about how he should act. And well, I guess maybe I'll talk about this more at the end, but just like one of his late lines in act five is just that man is a giddy thing. They're just like, at first he seems one way, but then he's another way. And so we see this sort of like giddiness, although maybe, maybe he always was open to love, but it just, it had to come to him in a more secure and reliable way in order to overcome his doubts. But maybe he is somehow getting what he always wanted. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sense as well um his his opposition to love is out of fear and fear comes from knowledge or ignorance and he has as we noted a evident personal knowledge of cuckoldry because he's <laughs> cuckolding people right or, or so it's implied and so he's like that's dangerous and so i'm afraid that would happen to me plus um you if if uh, if the gods are just and you cuckold people, then uh, you're going to be cuckolded. So right. there's, there's this uh, very personal 
fear there, but then there's also the fear that's alleviated upon hearing that Beatrice loves him of mm-hmm. rejection and right. of, you know, unrequited love. Right. And right. so to your point, I, I do think it, it seems like he does, he doesn't hate love itself. He hates what he perceives about it. And when mm-hmm. those perceptions are changed, he willingly accepts love on much lower terms than he sets for himself. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So um, should we turn to, because I think you, you had said that there seems to be a lot going on with our core themes in act one, scene three and act five, scene one. Is, is there any context that you think needs to be set out in order to properly understand act one, scene three, if we're going to read some of those lines out loud? Um, it's just John talking with one of his uh, henchmen, because, you know, John's sort of the villain of the play. Mm-hmm. And they're discussing how John is feeling after losing the civil war. And, mm-hmm. you know, now he's just sort of sitting here in his discontent, having to, in a way like kowtow to his brother and humble himself. And he just is not feeling good about it. And that, so this is his reaction to this, this news. Um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have control over fate, but fate has, this is the fate he's been handed. And this is his reaction to his fate. Okay. So maybe I'll be Conrad and you can play Don John. We're going to read about 40 lines of act one, scene three, and then hear what um, uh, Mr. Bolingbroke makes out of it. Yeah, that's great. You can be Conrad. All right. What the good year, my Lord, why are you thus out of measure sad? There is no measure in the occasion that breeds. Therefore, the sadness is without limit. You should hear reason. And when I've heard it, what blessing brings it? If not a present remedy, at least a patient sufferance. I wonder that thou, being, as thou sayest thou art, born under Saturn, goest about to apply a moral medicine to a mortifying mischief. I cannot hide what I am. I must be sad when I have cause, and smile at no man's jests. Eat when I have stomach, and wait for no man's leisure. Sleep when I am drowsy, and tend on no man's business. Laugh when I am merry, and claw no man in his humor. Yeah, but you must not make the full show of this till you may do it without controlment. You have of late stood out against your brother, and he hath taken you newly into his grace, where it is impossible you should take true root but by the fair weather that you make yourself. It is needful that you frame the season for your own harvest. I had rather be a canker in a hedge than a rose in his grace, and it better fits my blood to be disdained of all than to fashion a carriage to rob love from any. In this, though I cannot be said to be a flattering, honest man, it must not be denied, but I am a plain-dealing villain. I am trusted with a muzzle and enfranchised with a clog. Therefore, I have decreed not to sing in my cage. And if I had my mouth, I would bite. If I had my liberty, I would do my liking. In the meantime, let me be what I am and seek not to alter me. Can you make no use of your discontent? I make all use of it, for I use it only. Okay, so what do you what do you think about this scene? So there's a couple of things at play here that I think are interesting. The the conversation that they're having is 
John is down in the dumps for obvious reasons. He's lost this battle. He's now sort of forcibly domesticated by his brother, as he says. He's given freedom. You know, his brother accepts him back into his family and into into his love, but he puts a muzzle on him. Mm-hmm. And he's able to freely, you know, he's a bird. He's able to freely sing, but he's in a cage. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not just going to pretend that everything is hunky dory and happy when I am living with my discontent. Now, mm-hmm. uh, a few things in here that are interesting. He, the thing that is motivating him is anger or frustration or sadness. All of this being that he's, it's, it's these strong emotions and none of them are positive. These are Mm -hmm. all reactions that come to him being wronged, that he's been dishonored. And so um, in the Greek sense, it's that his thumos, his spiritedness is being aroused because of how he's being treated. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when his friend, when, you know, Conrad is saying to him, like, what you gotta like, you, you need to be calm. You need to approach this rationally. Uh, he, he makes the point he's telling him to apply a moral medicine. Uh, the implication with that being apply the teachings from morality or philosophy in mm-hmm. order to react to this external, this external grief that's occurring upon him. Mm-hmm. Um, Notes also that Conrad is supposed to be born under a a gloomy um, zodiac sign that that Saturn is was above the Earth when Conrad was born, and so he's supposed to be uh, melancholic. But he's mm-hmm. saying this to to John, so apparently he's not he's not what he claims to be. And then John goes through several things. He says, "I must be sad when I have a cause, and smile at no man's jest." So when I'm sad, I'm going to appear sad. I'm not going to smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I must eat when I have a stomach and wait for no man's leisure. When I'm hungry, I'm going to eat and I'm going to wait on no one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sleep when I'm drowsy, tend on no man's business. I'm not going to do something for someone else. When I'm tired, I'm going to sleep. And then lastly, laugh when I'm merry and claw no man in his humor. Claw no man in his humor uh, has this sense that he's not going to adjust his merriment to other people's feelings. So if he's, Mm -hmm. he's a, feeling like he wants to laugh if somebody is in a dark humor and is feeling um, is feeling sad or angry or something else. He's not going to, you know, kowtow to them. Mm-hmm. Now, all of this implies this, like, independence. It's all about me. I'm going to do what's best for me. But mm-hmm. interestingly, none of it has to do with his reason. And he rejects reason wholly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Conrad says you need to make use of your reason. You should hear reason. You need to... Use your reason to tame your passions. And John says, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the follow-up from all of this, the thing that happens immediately after this in the play, is that John gets together with his cronies, and they make their plots against Hero. First, as you noted in your, in your summary, they plot to make the prince, make it appear to Claudio that the prince is in love with Hero. And mm-hmm. then next, when that fails, they plot to make it appear that Hero has been unfaithful. Mm-hmm. So John will apply his reason. It requires reason for him to make these plans, but mm-hmm. he only applies it in seeking revenge. Mm-hmm. So his reason is in service of his thumos. Right. He wants to make his anger, he wants to satisfy his anger with revenge. 
And that's the only thing he'll call his reason in the service of. He will not let his reason rule his other, you know, the the other humors in his body, his other passions, these other things. He will only use his reason in service of them. Mm-hmm. His, his heart is the one that rules his body, not his head. Right. Um, so do you have any, before we, we go to, I, I, I'll connect this to five, one, um, right. I've seen one, but do you have any, anything to add or any thoughts on that before we do that? No. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you give a really good account of the scene. And so, so with the overall, well, point that he wants to make, yeah, that, or that you bring out that reason is just an instrument of the passions according to Don John. Um, and that seems to be a big question of the play is whether or not reason can get out from underneath the passions to guide us or something to that effect. Um, and so like, I don't know, like Don John in a certain sense presents himself as just like a, uh, like just a passive effect of like external and internal causes or something like that. Um, and I think you're right to say that he can't, he's not really looking outside of himself, but then yeah, reason, like, I don't know. So, so he wants to get revenge, but he's sort of, he's so sort of, I don't know, like narrow in his pursuit that he's just like, well, if, so a friend of my brother, I have a chance to hurt him and through hurting him, I can hurt my brother at least a little bit, but I don't know. It's just sort of like taking up like the first immediate opportunity to do something. And and maybe to say, well, I don't know, one more thing about it is that this plan is so feeble. Like the second plan is much more devious and much more effective. But this first plan, all that's required to like dispose of it is just that the prince have a conversation with Claudio. <laughs> that's all that's required. And it's like, it's dispensed so quickly. I mean, Claudio does sort of fall into despair. And then he makes his own sophisticated argument about love saying that it's kind of like a witch and that it's such an overpowering passion that it will cause us to betray our friends. Um, and then, but, but he's under, yeah, so he's sort of tricked and then makes a sophisticated argument, but it's just immediately kind of set aside. You know, I, yeah, I, go ahead. Um, one thing, and we'll, we'll pick this up at the end, but you and I discussed before the prince's role in the play and the question of Claudio's courtship of hero uh, might have some very specific political implications for the prince. Mm-hmm. And so it's possible that John goes for Claudio's love for Hero because he's aware of um, oh. plans. Nice. Okay. Cool. So when we get to the spot on the Prince, we should we should yeah, bring this. Back. Cool. That's that's a nice observation. Cool. That's great. Yeah. As you were, t- I mean, it's it's it came from you originally. We're just tying all the threads together. Yeah. Yeah. No, but that, that's that's really good. Okay. So then, should we move to reading a little bit of five point one out loud? Yeah, 5.1, this one's good because in my mind, these scenes are twins. It's it's strange that they're both in here. So John is a villain and he's uh, sort of uh, has this canker in his soul because he's been wronged and he Mm -hmm. wants to get revenge. Leonardo is not a villain um, and his motivation in this scene we'll see is love not i mean there's anger in it but the anger comes because of his love and so um they have it's it's almost an identical conversation between leonardo's brother and leonardo and that between conrad and john Mm -hmm. so i I just want to read them and we'll see we'll see the obvious similarities and then we'll discuss why it's different and what it leads leonardo to 
Okay. Yeah. And I, d- I did not see the similarity between 1.3 and 5.1 until you pointed it out. But, but once you point it out, then it's like clear that there's a kind of inversion of the two while, while they also make similar points. So, yeah. So um, do you want to be Leonardo's brother and I'll be Leonardo for this one? Yeah, that sounds good. Oh, um, one other thing. The thing that they're discussing is Hero has just been humiliated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have this plot with the the priest to pretend that hero's dead and this is the this is leonardo um sort of reacting right after the event has happened and discussing what what he wants to do about it um but also again it's the way that his emotions the way he feels them and the way that reason uh plays into it all right mm-hmm. If you go on thus, you will kill yourself, and tis not wisdom thus to second grief against yourself. I pray thee, cease thy counsel, which falls into mine ears as profitless, as water in a sieve. Give not me counsel, nor let no comforter delight mine ear, but such a one whose wrongs do suit with mine. Bring me a father that so loved his child, whose joy of her is overwhelmed like mine and bid him speak of patience. Measure his woe the length and breadth of mine, and let it answer every strain for strain, as thus for thus, and such a grief for such, and every lineament, branch, shape, and form. If such a one will smile and stroke his beard, bid sorrow wag, cry hem when he should groan, patch grief with proverbs, Make misfortune drunk with candle wasters? Bring him yet to me, and I of him will gather patience. But there is no such man. For brother, men can counsel and speak comfort to that grief, which they themselves not feel, but tasting it, their counsel turns to passion, which before would give preceptial medicine to rage, fetter strong madness in a silken thread, Charm ache with air and agony with words. No, no, tis all men's office to speak patience to those that ring under the load of sorrow. But no man's virtue nor sufficiency to be so moral when he shall endure the like himself. Therefore, give me no counsel. My griefs cry louder than advertisement. Therein do men from children nothing differ. I pray thee peace. I will be flesh and blood. For there was never yet philosopher that could endure the toothache patiently. However, they have writ the style of gods and made a push at chance and sufferance. Yet bend not all the harm upon yourself. Make those that do offend you suffer too. There thou speakest reason. Nay, I will do so. My soul doth tell me hero is belied, and that and that shall Claudio know. So shall the prince and all of them that thus dishonor her. <clears throat> All right. Obviously this one's more beautiful. Um, in my opinion, I think it's, it's more well stated. Um, and, uh, just a curious side note in this play, almost all of Shakespeare's plays are primarily in, um, I have pentameter. They're written in meter and mm-hmm. occasionally they break out into out of verse into prose. This play is the opposite. Um, it's in prose almost the whole time with occasional verse. Um, mm-hmm. this scene, in particular, is in verse, and it, uh, the it's it's often symbolic of you know higher class people are speaking to each other. Um, Benedict, for example, I don't think ever speaks in verse in the play. I don't know what exactly to make of that. 
or he like writes that really like bad sonnet um, that he's he himself is dissatisfied with. That's true. That's true. And and so maybe I mean he doesn't have the the poetry in him, and so and Shakespeare's trying to show us that maybe. Um, yeah. Anyway, this is written in verse. It's more beautifully written, but it's the same argument. However, the subject is different because for John, he has this canker in his soul of anger and frustration about being defeated in battle and then now being a second-class citizen under his brother's auspices. Mm -hmm. Whereas for Leonardo, his daughter has been legitimately wronged. And so Mm -hmm. it's coming purely from his love. And his brother comes to him, he's, you know, it's, it's not bad advice. You know, he's like, you need to be careful. You're going to harm yourself with this grief. Why are you putting it all back on yourself? Uh, Leonardo's response essentially is stop telling me to use philosophy. Mm-hmm. He says it several times in different ways. Um, for example, uh, in both of them, they use the word moral to refer to moral philosophy in both of the, um, the scenes that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And then in this one, Leonardo also uses the phrase candle wasters, which refers to those who are staying up late, either reading or writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and candles and it's a waste of candles to do this you should just do it every day if you're a practical man um, and uh he uses the phrase preceptial medicine uh, pr- uh proverbs uh uses the word virtue all of this is signaling that like philosophy is not going to fix this and mm-hmm. that it will means that the philosophers misunderstand the nature of reality um, and Leonardo's like, well, you're just acting like a child. And he, and his response is, okay, I'm acting like a man, right? I'm made of flesh and blood. And you have, if you meet a philosopher, find one with a toothache and ask him how, how well his philosophy is helping him. <laughs> um, and, and it's funny. He uses this, this most minimal example, right? It's, it's right. that, you know, toothache is something that it can be pretty painful. Maybe it lasts a while. But it's something that you can live with. And yet he's saying if a philosopher has a toothache, he won't bear it patiently. Right. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And so this point that he's making, uh, oh, and then uh, charm ache with air and agony with words. You're, you're, you're using words to try and fix something real. Words are fake. This, <laughs> this grief is real. And so... Um, between these two scenes, first, there's a teaching from Shakespeare that I think is important. And that is that the tragic view of life is fundamentally true. And philosophy's rejection of the tragic view of life is a rejection of reality. Now, philosophy is useful, and it can help us in a lot of things. But believing that stoicism, which is, of course, when they when you say, be philosophical, or when you're referring to philosophy in a setting like this, you're referring to stoicism, that um, Epicure or no, um, Epictetus, uh, famously in his Entrity in the Handbook, the the example he always used is: if your wife and children are killed in front of you, you just need to act as if nothing different has happened in your day than any other day. Um, hmm. This is the advice of these Stoics, and Leonardo says this is not real. And Shakespeare, by reiterating this throughout this, um, another good example is uh, in Macbeth. When Macduff is told by Malcolm to spew it like a man when his wife and children are killed, Macduff says, I will, but I must also feel it like a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Shakespeare, he's indicating something about these feelings. 
that they are real and that trying to overcome them with your reason is wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, that uh, that last statement that I make, I hope, uh, rings some alarm bells for people. We're looking at this play uh, where there's this competition or this tension in the relationship between reason and love. And love is a passion and reason is reason. So Shakespeare is somehow with these two scenes trying to point us toward the idea that reason has its role. Reason is important, but when it comes to the passions, they're almost always going to take precedence and reason needs to find a way to uh, reconcile itself to that rather than try to defeat the passions because it's foolish to try to do so. And in trying to do so um, you become not human in in a certain way because humans feel these things and they must react to them. Now, one other point before I'll, I'll throw it over to you. I've, I've said a lot of things, but uh, one other point before I throw it over to you is uh, Leonardo also is carrying out a revenge or at least uh, a deception with regard to Hero as a result of his feelings. So John, he has these this anger and this revenge and it makes him want to make Hero seem unvirtuous in order to harm his brother. Leonardo because of the harm that's been done to Hero, the passion in him makes him go along with this plan to make Hero appear to be dead, to harm the people who hurt her and who and who uh, humiliated her. But then also, fundamentally, the hope is, given the friar's presentation of the plan, to make love happen. To make it so that those people who love each other realize that this was a deception and it was a lie and give them the opportunity to be virtuous and say they're sorry and receive forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And so you can see the, they both are led to these deceptions. They both are led to use their reason in service of their passion. Um, Ironically for Shakespeare, uh, I think that, (coughs) excuse me, I think that in Plato or Aristotle, the heart or the thumos is probably more noble than the stomach or the eros. But for Shakespeare, it seems that the thumos, which is what John is going in service of, is a baser thing to put your reason in service of than to eros, at least when it is sincere love, which is what Leonardo is putting himself in service to with his using his reason to cause this deception to make it possible for this reconciliation to happen. Hmm. Whoa. <clears throat> There's a lot to say. Uh, I I don't want to say too much about it because I think <laughs> there's a huge amount to say. I mean, there's so much, so many good things that you said. Um, maybe I'll just make a very very brief reply, and maybe we can talk about these things like at another point. Um, because it seems like in a way, like the question is like opened up as to like what the character of the philosophic life is like at bottom in a way. And there's a lot to say about it. Maybe So maybe I'll just like say something like if, if philosophy is the attempt by human beings to understand the world as it is and to know those things, which cannot be otherwise, then it might be the case then that Shakespeare is sort of showing us, well, look, a human being is a giddy thing. It's a passionate being. And you're not capable of completely emptying yourself of those passions. And so if or to the extent that it is not possible to empty yourself of passion, 
the reasonable thing to do is to try to order the passions the best that you can while realizing that from time to time it will rule over your reason or that um, your reason will somehow be partially limited by them, at least to some extent. And so you would want to try to invest the passions with the proper amount of hope that they should have for things or something like that. I mean, so that like, yeah, you couldn't, can you make yourself just into a receptacle for wisdom that just seeks out, you know, knowledge without having any kind of social concern for others? Like if that's not possible, then you'll always have to accommodate yourself to these other longings and see the ways in which they're potentially in tension with the quest for wisdom, even in their demands on our time, if nothing else. I mean, there's a huge amount to say about this kind of thing. So I, I want to, <laughs> uh, I, I feel like I'll ramble if I say too much more and perhaps they already have, but I, I think well, that you're I'm, open- I'm enjoying it. If, if you have more, I'd, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe just to say one final thing. I mean, if I'm not mistaken at the end of Plato's Phaedo near the end of the, dialogue, Socrates sort of puts his hands in front of his face. And so it seems like part of what he's arguing in that dialogue is that what, like if philosophy is learning how to die, what that must mean something to the effect of at bottom, in order to see the world clearly, you have to reconcile yourself to your mortality. And that we spend most of our lives imagining that we'll live forever or that like, I don't know, that we won't die, that we somehow find a way to evade or ignore that fact until certain points, but that to genuinely understand what's good for us, we would have to find a way to actually reconcile ourselves to our mortality, to the possibility of a dreamless sleep. Um, and that, but even Socrates, perhaps arguably in a certain sense, the most reasonable human being that ever existed, or at least as Plato presents him is like, even he has to indulge in some sort of like fear of death, at least for a brief moment. I mean, it's kind of like an awkward dialogue, you know, it's just like, all of your friends being like, Socrates, you're about to die. So prove to us that our souls are immortal. <laughs> There's like a lot to say about that. Um, uh, but the, and, and even Socrates, like, I mean, he hangs out with people like Crito and like some people would like to cynically argue that like Socrates just hangs out with Crito because he has money and like Socrates doesn't work. And so he needs to please people that have money. So they'll give him, uh, you know, like pay the bills or something to that effect. But I don't know. I I mean, maybe like this kind of cold cynical argument would say that every minute Socrates spends with Crito and his son Critobulus, it's just like, he's calculating the whole time. Like, well, if I spend two and a half hours with Crito today, I think he'll give me money for the rest of the month or something like that. Like, I don't know. It's, it's possible that Socrates is willing to indulge in just like having fun from time to time and that he's not simply or only guided by reason. I mean, there's a lot to say about this. I mean, maybe, you know, we should talk about Plato like at another, another point, but, but yeah. that's all I have to say about it for now is that I think that like, there's a desire to become this like receptacle for wisdom, but that somehow that's not fully possible for human beings. So then if it's not possible, how much, how much room or how much of a, of a place ought we to grant this desire to spend time with other people to just enjoy their company? Like how like in the hierarchy of goods, where should that go if we want to become wise? I mean, it's a huge, yeah, it's, sorry, sorry to ramble so much. This is great. And I, and uh, I, I, I only bring this up to show the, the depth at which, at which Shakespeare was thinking about these things. Now I will say also Shakespeare uses stoicism as a, I don't know, caricature of philosophy to some extent, because mm-hmm. of course, Socrates wasn't a Stoic. 
philosophy is not stoicism, but when people like, he's just like what right now I'm in my griefs and what would the philosopher say to me in my griefs? Probably something like you need to be more reasonable. And (laughs) it's just, it just is an absurd statement. Right. Right. What, What I think that Shakespeare offers here is sort of a middle way between the, uh, the perfect logos of reason ruling one's passions in all and through all and the pure acceptance of the tragic view of life. I think that Nietzsche's offer is just that life is tragedy and we have to be creative to, to find uh, meaning and et cetera, et cetera. But I think that Shakespeare's offering a middle way. You don't, you don't have to go full Nietzsche and you don't have to go full Epictetus you have to find a way to mix the elements properly. And that's what this play I think tries to demonstrate in these, in these scenes, of course, it's, it's fairly direct, but I think this play is trying to demonstrate that in its overall message. And in this, in this look at the question of reason versus love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then should we talk about the prince? Um, Since, since it almost, I think you, you had proposed when we were discussing earlier that, um, like in the stage directions or something to that effect. And even in the way that he's just mentioned in the play, like his name is Don Pedro, but in the text, he always comes up as Prince, whereas Don John comes up as, well, Don John. So it seems like there's something kind of deliberate there. And were you proposing something like it's possible that Shakespeare wants us to think about uh, Machiavelli's The Prince or like princes in that kind of way? Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And um, <clears throat> anybody who might be skeptical of, Oh, well, Shakespeare's dealing with Machiavelli. Um, it's very, very well documented that he, he knew Machiavelli. He had read not personally, but that he had read a lot of his works. Um, almost everything Machiavelli put out was available by the time that Shakespeare was writing. Um, and so he almost certainly read the Prince, uh, in reading the Tempest. I think there's some evidence that he read some of Machiavelli's letters and, uh, the question of, of the, Discourses on Livy is, is kind of a bigger one, but I do think that he was familiar enough with Machiavelli and a close enough reader and understander of these things that he could just as sort of shorthand use the name Prince to point us in that direction. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So then, so then I think like uh, we had discussed yesterday. Just I don't know, kind of thinking about is the Prince based on some of his speeches and deeds in the play, is he the character most worthy of emulation or does he fall prey to some of the difficulties involved in trying to sort out the proper relationship between reason and love in our own lives? And so maybe I'll mention a couple of his deeds and then you can mention the ones that I leave out because I don't think I have an exhaustive list right here. And maybe, maybe it doesn't make sense to be exhaustive, but maybe just mention some of the ones that strike strike as his most significant and then we can both bring out some of his shortcomings um is that so it seems like the political context of the play is that the prince has just sort of successfully resolved a civil war brought on by his um bastard brother and yeah to seek respite they come to messina but you could say that like at the beginning of the play and like act one scene one at the beginning there might be some prudential calculations that leonardo is making in some of his things that he asks about like uh you know in on one hand you could say he might be friendly and simply showing concern when he asks how many people died in the war 
And that might be principally what he's motivated by, but at least we can say for sure that what he also gleans from that information is like sort of like the troop count in a certain sense, or like how many men are coming from Aragon coming here? Because that's a pretty big risk to take on to like have an army that's like battle tested that just won a war that consolidated its power. And like, they are coming to you now. Now, again, they could be friends, but it seems like Leonardo kind of is interested in that information. And um, I think as we were talking about before, Claudio, though he maybe really is in love with Hero, does find her to be more beautiful than Benedict finds her or something like that and is really charmed by her. He does ask very, you know, as he's sort of like asking about, you know, how available Hero is or whether or not she's good, is does like, does Leonardo have another heir? And the answer is no. So whoever marries Hero, it seems that they will come into possession of all of Leonardo's things once he's deceased. And I think we get a few indications that Leonardo is fairly old. Like when Leonardo is kind of pretending that Hero is dead near the end and almost like talks about wanting to duel, he and his brother talking about wanting to duel Claudio or the prince. It's sort of like, uh, I think Claudio, when they're out of the room, calls them like these toothless old men. Like they're, they're not young, I guess you could say. And so anybody who would marry Hero is somebody who could maybe reasonably expect to gain all of Leonardo's possessions like with their lifetime and with enough time to like actually do things with them or something like that. So politically speaking, Shakespeare doesn't emphasize this. This is, I think, a very understated theme in the play, but I think the information is kind of available um, that the prince might be looking to make an advantageous alliance or connection by having somebody that's close to him marry Hero. Um, and I think you you brought out something uh, when we were talking before, and may, maybe you can just like kind of take it from here for a second. Yeah, yeah. So um, the question of why John goes for Claudio instead of for the prince, I mean, it seems that trying to assassinate his brother or somehow uh, humiliate or, or harm his brother is what he would want to do to get his revenge. But instead he goes for Claudio and it's like, well, this is his brother's friend. So maybe fellow feeling will make his brother upset. But I think that the account that you just give of Claudio and the prince sort of scheming together, both in the play and maybe um, outside of the action of the play to make it so that Claudio is in the court and becomes the heir is, is very reasonable. And then it makes John's revenge make a whole lot more sense because it would mean that John was aware of the prince's machinations and John is, is bright. I mean, like he's, he's not an idiot and he's, you know, he makes these plans and they're pretty clever. And so he may even just from observation be saying, okay, if I can break up this marriage, it's really going to hurt my brother's political prospects. And so it could, it could hurt his princedom for, you know, for a generation. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So then, so then the questions are, so, so then, so the prince might have these machinations. And I think, I think you were the one who pointed this out that maybe the reason, or you, well, you certainly pointed this out is that Claudio does not ask the prince to woo hero for him. This is something that the prince himself insists upon doing. And Claudio agrees. Um, but it could be the case that if the prince really wants to make sure that this political consolidation is made, that he wants to put it in his own hands, that he thinks he is a more reliable wooer than Claudio is. And he doesn't want to depend upon Claudio being clumsy as he pursues hero, that he's going to make sure that he secures this 
and then talks to the father and like makes everything come about in the way that he wishes it to. Um, and so that he takes it into his own hands uh, to like make sure this happens. Cause otherwise it's kind of inexplicable to some extent, like why he does the wooing on Claudio's behalf. If Claudio doesn't ask him to do it. And, and, and there's no evidence that Claudio's going to fail. Like there, there's no like, oh, I'm just so nervous. I can't talk to her, which I'm, positive that's probably how it's presented and sometimes when it's staged right that's that doesn't make sense in the text of the play and so it it makes that one dramatic detail which shakespeare doesn't do things um you know superfluously he he wouldn't just throw this in there uh especially like i mean it, it doesn't even serve much of a dramatic purpose like it's this like very brief like oh no are you stealing hero from me right uh, but yeah, there, there's that. And then, of course, the prince is the one who is behind putting Beatrice and Benedict together. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. So then so then the prince arranges all of the romantic relationships. And I, I guess I suppose Benedict and Beatrice being together would even further cement the political relationship between Aragon and Messina. I hadn't thought of that before until you said that. Um, but at the end of act two, scene two, when the prince insists that he's going to put Beatrice and Benedict together, he says, uh, quote, if we can do this, Cupid is no longer an archer. His glory shall be ours for we are the only love gods. So whereas Benedict and Beatrice and Claudio, to some extent, all seek at various points to make arguments that might protect themselves, um, that they sort of fear love, that love is this kind of powerful force that's above them and independent of their will. Um, it seems like here the prince sees himself as standing above love and that it is under his control. So again, to say it's like instead of a God that exists independent of our will, striking others with loving inspiration whenever it wishes to, the prince sort of says now it will be human beings who are in control of it. Um, and the prince I don't know. Like, I, it's hard to say how philosophical or how, you know, Machiavellian the prince is for sure. But I mean, he could have a practical goal on one hand, which is consolidate power with like a friendly city or something to that effect and really kind of gain control over it in a friendly way or you know, pseudo friendly way. So that, that, that could be the practical import of what he does. But at a theoretical level, if he's interested in understanding things, it could also be the case that the prince thinks that he can find confirmation or evidence on his behalf of like, well, I think I'm standing above love. So if I can arrange these things that are practical gain to me, I would also gain theoretical understanding by saying like, I can see the different sort of soul types and where, what other person is like well-suited to them. And it's like under my control, I understand it so well, I can bring this together. So he gains both practical and theoretical. So practical gain and theoretical knowledge through doing these types of things. Um, but I think we both noticed different ways in which the prince is not sufficiently clear-sighted, I guess. Um, yeah, certainly. So maybe I'll mention one and maybe you can mention another. Um, I think, yeah, in light of our conversation about the prince yesterday, I wanted to like walk, look at the prince with more, I don't know, carefulness this morning. And something I think that, yeah, we both talked about a little bit this morning also is that the prince does not kill or imprison his brother, Don John. After Don John, sorry, Don John instigated a civil war. How, <laughs> this seems like a, a big mistake. The um, least Machiavellian thing you can imagine. Right. 
Right. Like how can you wrong somebody in this way and not expect them to try to take their revenge on you if or to the extent it's possible to do so? So it seems like there was an unwillingness to be as cruel as was necessary under the circumstances by Don – or sorry, by the prince and that the prince is ultimately more attached to morality or maybe something along those lines than he thought that he was. Or I think as you had put it before that he's more bound by love than he thinks he is, that it's possible that his attachment to his bastard brother, like he felt bad for him or loved him or something to that effect that led him not to dispose of him in the way that would have been most politically expedient. Yeah. Um, it's, it's suggested anyway, uh, act one, scene one around line one forty five. Leonardo and the Prince. Um, well, er- earlier than that, they step aside, but when they come back forward, the thing that they had been discussing Prince says, okay, that's all that I have to tell you. We're all going to follow Leonardo now. And Leonardo turns specifically to Don John and says, let me bid you welcome my Lord being reconciled to the brother, to the Prince, your brother. I owe you all duty. Um, Mm -hmm. Implying that this reconciliation happened. There's some sort of affection or love there. And uh, as you point out that he is susceptible to love, he's not standing above it. Um, He should have, he should have killed his brother, but somehow, a reconciliation was affected, which even if his brother was sincere, it probably shouldn't have been possible politically. Right. Right. And then the other mistake that the prince makes while thinking that he stands above love, that ironically, or maybe not ironically, but this kind of striking that Benedict reacts the opposite to it is I think a scene that we talked about before, but that Don John's ruse of getting Baraccio to stand in the window with Margaret to make it seem as if Hero uh, has been unfaithful to Claudio and turned him into a cuckold in a way like that scene, like the prince just believes it like hook, line and sinker. Like he, that is to say in a certain sense, perhaps because he takes himself as somebody who's not moved by love that he thinks he's more sophisticated than that. He is just like, Oh yeah, I totally get like why hero would cheat on uh, Claudio the night before the wedding. Whereas Benedict who has now given himself over to the passion of love, um, is willing to take serious the possibility that Hero is not unfaithful. And so he's the first person to at least say that he doesn't really know if Hero was unfaithful. And by somebody casting doubt and saying like, I just don't know, I'm feeling wonder right now, that sets the stage for the friar and Beatrice and then Leonardo to be a little bit more reasonable about the situation to think like, well, is Hero really like that? Shouldn't we try to figure this out as opposed to just immediately assuming that she would be unfaithful. And so the prince by standing above love or thinking that he's completely above love or something to that effect is not capable of having the wherewithal to doubt that Hero was unfaithful, even though there's no indication at all before that, that she would be other than something that Don John said. So he takes John, Don John too seriously when he says, look, Hero's unfaithful. And I'll give you an example. Like instead of being suspicious of his brother, I'm just thinking of this now. He actually gives his brother the benefit of the doubt, maybe precisely because he, yeah. And loves so you, you can see that it's, it, it show he's deluded. The prince is deluded because he believes himself above love, but his, his natural affection for his brother has caused him to um, prioritize his brother's statements over his own reasonable assessment of the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a result, he credulously believes his brother while believing that it's because of these uh, objective principles that he has divined. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's it's this very ironic thing that 
because he thinks he stands above love, but does not, he makes this mistake. Whereas Benedict, once he knows he doesn't stand above love, that love has taken him captive, he makes no pretensions to to stand above it and is correct. Right. Right. That's good. So, <laughs> so somehow you can be more reasonable by having the self-awareness to see that you're not fully free from being passionate or something like that. Yes. Which I think maybe moves us into like, I think the last thing we wanted to talk about, which is like, what is the ultimate teaching of the play to the extent that we can understand it at this time? Because I think like even in this conversation, I've learned a lot about what's going on in the play such that I see, you know, how many more times I would have to reread it to try to get close to the bottom of it. Um, but what are what are some things that you think like Shakespeare's trying to teach us overall about passion and reason or love and reason? It's it's complicated is the main teaching is that it's it's more complicated than you think it is. Anyone who thinks that they have a handle on it and that they are above it or that they are superior to to those who fall to it are probably deluded like the prince or are probably actively protecting themselves under this uh, false veneer like Benedict or, or Beatrice. And it, it seems that it's a question there's there's this view in the play cupid comes up over and over again in, in the line that you quoted and then also earlier in scene 1 and and throughout the play he's he's mentioned it seems that the god love is a, is really a god or at least this thing that's outside of us uh that also can control us and for shakespeare if one cannot accept that then one will not be able to reasonably approach it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, like uh, for starters, it's, it seems like Shakespeare wants us to see that love. And, and I think this agrees with what you're saying is likely to be irresistible to many men. As the Prince points out at precisely the moment that Benedict, you know, is making a powerful statement about how free he is from this passion. And that, so then the Prince and maybe Shakespeare agrees with the prince to this extent, although the prince doesn't apply his own argument maybe to himself sufficiently well. He thinks he's free of that, which he claims is true for others. Um, that like love will strike all of us at some point. But we, despite the great temptation to do otherwise, part of what we have to do is to be unlike Beatrice. And we have to find a way not to invest too much of our hope for happiness in love. Um, and maybe maybe we also have to revise how much happiness we can expect to have in this world altogether. Do we really like, we want to be superlatively happy, feel this like burning love or just burning happiness. That's just immediately manifest and palpable all the time, but it's just not quite available to us and did not be completely disappointed by that. Um, and if we decide we want to give ourselves over to love or to try to enjoy the goods that attend love, we have to be willing to take the risks that attend trusting others. Uh, we can't fully control others. And so uh, automatically, because that's the case, they can betray us. So I don't know. So if you, if you've decided that love is above you or that love is something that's irresistible, then when you enter into loving relationships, 
you shouldn't go into it blindly. So there is still something to learn from Benedict's statement that, you know, women are fundamentally untrustworthy or that there will always be, uh, you know, chads like Benedict who are going to try to tempt women out of their marriages or to be unfaithful. So you have to like go in with your eyes open that there are genuine risks. And if you're blind to those risks, you know, you'll probably become miserable, but, um, but you just have to be open to the, if love is irresistible and if you therefore then seek the goods that can only attend a loving relationship, you have to move towards those goods aware of the risk, but at least willing enough to trust another because without that trust, the goods that attend to love just aren't available to us at all. So um, I don't know. So I, then maybe, maybe that's all I have to say about that. Um, yeah. Do you have any, I don't know, m- more thoughts on. I have one more thought about the, the prince and um, those who would see themselves as, as outside of the control of these kinds of things. This is a theme in Shakespeare. Um, we, we discussed this briefly, um, but it's something that you see that this natural affection, this love, even those who seem the greatest in Shakespeare's plays still have to reconcile to this. Um, mm-hmm. Coriolanus is a good example. He, rather than conquer Rome, which would have made him like a mortal god, he is conquered. He, he surrenders because of his mother's love. And so he is conquered because of this, because he believes himself independent and, you know, seeking this, this possible immortality, but he fails it because he doesn't account for the influence that his mother will have on him. Um, Antony and Cleopatra is another good example. I've been reading the, the Roman face recently, so they're on the top of my mind, but Antony and Cleopatra is another example. Uh, in particular, I think that the big one is that Antony loses the final battle because Cleopatra is there and he follows her rather than following his instincts or his reason as a general. He's a very successful, very talented military man and he was going to win the battle, but he didn't because he followed Cleopatra um, out of, out of fear, out of love, out of this mistaken, you know, that he wasn't able to overcome that passion. And so it seems like it's something that Shakespeare wants to reiterate. And nevertheless, uh, the question of how to reasonably approach it, it seems like is the final teaching. Because I don't think that the teaching of this play is just out and out. You read Leonardo's speech in uh, Act 5, Scene 1 and say, oh, yes, this is it. We must reject reason and philosophy in favor of passion and love. I think that it's that tempered by the course of events that we see throughout the play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I think that's a good note uh, to end on. Great. So yeah, Bolingbroke, thanks so much. Uh, I learned a lot and I'm really grateful that you took the time to have this conversation. Yeah. Happy to be here. I learned a lot too. I, I love having these conversations. Cool. Well, uh, Brian Cerberus Wilson and uh, King Bolingbroke are out.